Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Film Punch. Uh, I'm Neil Klingerman, and I'm joined here today by... Angela Shershin. Dave Klingerman. Shara Remkes. Today we're going to be talking about an animated anthology film from Japan called Memories. This 1995 anime film uh, features the talent of Koji Morimoto, Satoshi Kon, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, and Tensai Okamura. Now, those first two names I mentioned, uh, Kon and uh, Morimoto, are actually kind of famous directors in their own right. Uh, Satoshi Kon's most famous for Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Paprika, so on and so forth, and was really starting to get sort of recognized by the broader film community, not just like anime fans. Unfortunately, he passed away around 2010, and uh, he has a very small but very good body of work that I recommend everybody check out. So, so there are three shorts in this particular anthology. Uh, there is uh, Magnetic Rose, Stink Bomb, and Cannon Fodder. And Magnetic Rose is probably the most interesting out of the three shorts. That one was directed by Koji Morimoto, who's most well-known in the West for doing the Haunted House short in the Animatrix, uh, and was written by Satoshi Kon, who I mentioned earlier, uh, with animation direction by another auteur in the Japanese animation world. It's basically a who's who of people who are really film-oriented in the world of anime and not so pulpy, uh, which is part of why it's such a magnificent film. And that guy is uh, Hiroyuki Okiura, who's known for producing very realistic kind of animation. Um, he's most well-known for the opening sequence to Cowboy Bebop, the movie. So let's dive into uh, this first film. I, I, think it, I think it's by far the, the meatiest film and most discussion-worthy film out of the group. And uh, there's a lot of kind of interesting themes involving memories and fantasy versus reality, and a lot of stuff that actually Satoshi Kon later in his career, this was literally the first film project that he had a direct hand in. Uh, it, it seems that if you watch any of Kon's work, he actually revisits in later films. So I sort of wanted to like open it up. Any impressions regarding just sort of the general atmosphere of this film, the sort of uh, horrific quality. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I watched this like 15 years or so ago, but this one really stuck with me. I remember seeing it. Uh, it's it's quite memorable, just with the um, the astronauts going onto this space station, spaceship kind of thing, uh, and the ship's computer keeps throwing up holograms? So, sort of. So, the plot's a little convoluted, which is kind of a problem in this world, but I'll kind of break it out a little bit. Uh, so, what what happened in this was is that there was an opera singer who uh, basically suffered a mental breakdown and retreated into her little fantasy world. And said so opera singer created a whole bunch of computer programs for herself to live out her fantasies until she died. After, after she died, those fantasies kept playing. Right. The computer basically just went haywire. Yeah. And her memory sort of imprinted onto the computer. Sure. Uh, this is kind of a surrealist short. There's sort of a jump in logic here. Yeah. It's more about, I think, uh, the 
inner workings of the individual characters and the general theme than it is about presenting something that necessarily like logically makes sense sure. uh, from a realist perspective. Right, it's definitely more. How would the computer have known the other the one astronaut's memories? Right. <laughs> well, I would think they. I was thinking is that he, some way he would some way the computer would be able to re, you know go into her mind and maybe create the memories and it's almost like. This computer needed a servant, and oh, oh, there's people I can, I'm useful again, and like I'm a bit like this is trying to have its purpose, I think, in a way. It kind of almost know. felt like the computer because it sent yeah. out an SOS, and, yeah, you know, and we saw, yeah, we saw that there had been previous people who'd gone in there, so it's like almost craving for attention she she's a lonely opera diva who just wants constant attention and it gets random like garbage scowl people including the crew that's our heroes our quote heroes uh to uh uh come into her little den opera diva or operating system diva <laughs> <laughs> a little from call a a little from call b <laughs> One thing that I liked about this, um, this vignette was it's kind of a near future type uh, of story, which I think is becoming more and more popular, you know, with Black Mirror and stuff. Um, and I liked how they kind of had different classes. So the astronauts, they weren't actually like you know, big astronauts, they were garbage collectors. So these were really like, you know, the working class and then getting kind of caught up into this higher class. and. I was kind of an interesting commentary on society in this like near future setting. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because Colm is one of the few like anime directors that actually deals with like directly with class kind of issues. Tokyo Godfathers actually deals with uh, mm -hmm. homeless people. Uh, so and another thing that I find interesting, and this you also find this in Tokyo Godfathers, is that everybody on the crew is international. It isn't just Japanese people. Uh, you know, you have a guy from Spain, you have a guy from uh, Germany, you have a guy from Russia. They're all very stereotypical, uh, almost cartoonishly so. But uh, it's very interesting to see that kind of internationalism as well on top of the sort of classism. And like Tokyo Godfathers also has like uh, uh, scenes that are in Spanish because there's like a Latina family who's illegally over in Japan doing migrant type work. So. So uh, it's definitely, it's really interesting to, to watch this film. It, you've seen some of like Cohn's later work because it sort of is him laying out a blueprint for a lot of the themes he'd revisit later on. So. I think this also, it kind of showed how the line between fantasy and reality, I think it was mentioned earlier, can be really blurred. You know, the one astronaut showing his child, but it's just a hologram, hologram and who's getting really caught up into this hologram image of his daughter. Yeah. Oh, and uh, he was the one that kind of saw through the hologram. At first, he, yeah. Yeah, he, he realized that, that, was it the flowers, I think, that tipped him off? Yeah, it was, a, it was the flowers that yeah. tipped him off. And he was like, wait, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't real. You know, my, my little girl died and fell off a roof. And... Um, yeah, it was it was interesting. Whereas the, the other guy was just so wrapped up in the high society that he didn't even like notice 
that there was anything odd. So, so I, I think there is kind of an interesting commentary here about how each one of us approaches reality and each one of us deals yeah. with issues that we're dealing with, you know, on an interpersonal mm -hmm. level. Miguel yeah. is just all about romanticism sure. and, you know what I mean, like like reading terrible novels and, you know what I mean, just living that kind of mm -hmm. life. And he just gets caught up in the romanticism of everything. Whereas, uh, um, and I guess this is kind of stereotypical because he's more, he's a Latin guy. And then the German is the harsh realist. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the Russian dude, hey, I just, I'm just, I'm just garbage scow man, you know. <laughs> get back here. Get back here. Yeah, get, get back, back here. here. <laughs> but, um, uh, I, but, but, but it's interesting because like his own memories, like every one of their, the different guys' memories affected the outcome of how they dealt with that situation. Yeah. So, you know, Miguel, he's always lusting after different ladies and probably failing most of the time based upon how he's acting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whereas, uh, um, oh, what's that guy's name? Uh, I want to say Gunter, but it's not Gunter, but Heinz. Heinz. It's a very typically German name. Uh, Heinz actually really dealt with something awful, and he had to actually overcome that kind of, uh, uh, he had to overcome, you know what I mean, a trauma. And a lot of this film is actually him like working through rem ghosts, remnants of him dealing with that trauma. Yeah. So, any additional thoughts regarding that? Well, my first impression of almost got like the 2001 Space Odyssey thing from the beginning. You know, from the very beginning, I was thinking like, you know, you're walking, I was thinking like, well, maybe she's alive and she's going to be sitting there actually they'll <laughs> <laughs> be echoing and everything and they're like no it's if Hal took over <laughs> and and yeah, it's somebody and it's like I got that you know I definitely got some 2001 vibes right? yeah it, like, like this whole anthology is just paying homage to Stanley Kubrick over and over and over again um uh, the scene that really gets me that sort of has this sort of iconic 2001 feel, yeah. even if it isn't a direct reference, is the yeah. very, very, very end where, uh, and this is spoiler alert, where uh, Heinz is floating out in space. Uh, there's a few rose petals inside his helmet, and it's contrasting him versus uh, the beautiful world inside the base. But when he's floating out in space and it just emphasizes his loneliness and isolation, and you see this sort of monolithic icon of him coming up into the view. That's very mm -hmm. Kubrickian the way that yeah. it's done. It's so fucking awesome. It's, so. it's funny that you bring that up because I actually had I when that scene with him floating by himself in space, I had a, a different uh, I guess reference in mind. Not it came after this, and it's kind of silly, but. Here's uh, remember Futurama, that episode where Bender, he's floating oh. in space. Oh, yeah. uh, and a little community grows on him. Oh, and I remember. Uh, and he becomes a yeah. god. And I was like, I mean, obviously that was created after this. <laughs> right. I, I was like, I was like, oh, I wonder if he'll be Bender and how <laughs> Well, he would certainly be a lot less lonely yeah. Uh, yeah. at the end of the film. So you were you were doing well until everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh. <laughs> oh man. Sorry, 
Yeah, so I think that almost took it out of me. I was like, oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, save the funny part for the next episode, not this episode. This is supposed to be like a tragic drama, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think I think a good rule of thumb with these kind of things is always start with the strongest and close with the strongest. And I think out of the three, I mean, the first is by far the strongest. Like, uh, uh, they basically took this, like, ghost story that Otomo wrote in comic book form years ago. Uh, and the ghost story was very simple. It was just sort of creepy. People go to a distress signal, and they see creepy stuff on a space station hmm. about an opera singer. Cone and Morimoto just went, we're throwing that story out, and we're going to write our own thing. Uh-huh. And, uh, but they, they still retained some of that. Yeah, well. yeah. They took the basic outline yeah. of it and turned it into like a 45-minute thing of yeah. awesomeness. Yeah. So, but uh, th- there's, a, there's a lot that I love about the production design on this. I don't know if anybody noticed anything that was kind of fun or interesting about sort of the visual design aesthetic here. I, I, um, Lots of detail, lots of details, and uh, as you mentioned, high production uh, quality. Uh, I really like the, the art style of, of all three, actually. The, yeah. Um, yeah, the, there was a lot, the, the way that sort of robots were kind of like, I don't know if run down is the right word, but they were like kind of junk, junkily put together. So. I love what I love how everybody that even touched it started to rot. And it was yeah. like everything looked beautiful from mm-hmm. when you first looked at it, but right. when you touch it, it immediately just... Yeah, started. even even the roses. Yeah. Um, she put the roses down, and they looked like normal roses, but then as soon as they picked them up, they started falling apart. And then, you know, they're flinging them around, and they just completely... Just right, and all of her beautiful old European clothes right. falling apart, right. and then... You see her out of this beautiful idyllic countryside, but it's really just a hologram, and it's all dirty, nasty water, and decrepit, decaying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I almost thought oil, too. Yeah, so... I was thinking, like, rust is what I got from, you know, rust. I think it's kind of... Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, reddish and everything. Yeah. Yeah, that was coming over. I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah so over. it was really kind of a thing in the '90s and the early 2000s, a little bit in the late '80s, that there were a handful of these like filmmakers in the world of anime that were really trying to push things forward, and they had a very realistic style. Like I think after this point, if anybody like watches ping pong the animation on Netflix or something like that, after this point, all the guys that were really like trying to push things forward got very surreal, and it's complete opposite now. But there was this sort of phase where realism was like in and this hyper level of detail. And I really miss it. I wish people would still produce stuff like this. Uh, But unfortunately, it's kind of a relic now, which I think is really sad. And it was kind of rare to begin with. Most anime isn't this lush. A lot of it's actually pretty ugly, in my opinion. Uh, And this, this I love just because of the incredible amounts of detail in spite of like very small budgets, yeah. you know. Well, as we mentioned, I really like the contrast between the dirty station and the beautiful hologram with green and blue skies. Yeah. And Did the animation styles change um, throughout this? Because it some scenes, like when they were doing the space, like the 
the wider view of the spaceship and yeah. the garbage surrounding it almost felt like there's a different animation style versus when they're actually in so, the so, so it's interesting that you mentioned this. If you actually Google my name on the internet, I ran a panel on this at one point. Um, there's this thing in the world of anime called Sakuga, uh, which is basically where uh, different animators are assigned different scenes. In Western animation, usually an animator is assigned a character and they focus on like building the character into the action. And uh, Japanese animation doesn't focus as much on character animation. It focuses more on like whole scenes and effects. Uh, and there are individual animators that are given certain scenes, and some of those animators are like auteurs in their own right. So uh, this scene will be done by Hiroki Okira. He has a very different style than Koji Morimoto, uh, who did this scene. So like that's the reason why you're getting that kind of shifting style. And about the only thing I've ever seen in Western animation, because the guys that did it consciously emulated this, was the opening to the movie Super actually does the similar style, because the guys were like, we really like that aspect of anime, so we're going to do this like total like indie Western comics hmm. style of having different animators animate different scenes and making the styles not cleaned up the way they would be like in a Disney film. So it's actually probably one of the most interesting things about uh, that world in terms of pure animation production quality. Uh, so like you'll watch some dumb like TV show like Naruto and all of a sudden there'll be one episode where there's this amazingly fluent animated fight and you'll be like, yeah, this is awesome. And then it'll go back to 50 more episodes of them staring at each other talking about power levels. <laughs> so, uh, but it's, it's something that uh, whenever you see a high budget film, high relative to the rest of this world, budget film, you're going to really get that kind of uh, uh, eclecticism in terms of the style. It's really cool. So uh, one other thing that I like visually, uh, and this is, I mean, like the dank backgrounds is definitely a Koji Morimoto uh, um, trademark. It's really fun because you're getting three directors and all of their trademarks are like merging into one perfect production, basically. Um, and Koji Morimoto really brings that kind of surrealism Although Cone himself is also very surrealist, but his surrealism is crazier than Cone's. Uh, like, for instance, when uh, um, the opera singer is surrounded by her own hologram, but everything else around her is the decrepit, broken down ship. Mm -hmm. She's in her own little bubble. Right, mm -hmm. literally. <laughs> Actually, I kept thinking of The Wizard of Oz. Hmm. The, you know, the, the, the good the fairy witch. godmother was always in the bubble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I did, I did want to ask, you know, at least one of us had seen Madame Butterfly, and the actual opera that is referenced in this is Madame Butterfly. You keep hearing, like, songs from it over and over again. Um, you know, like in that, that scene where there's the hands that are, like, detached. It's an entire audience of just hands clapping. Um, you, you actually hear, like, music from Madame Butterfly. Is there anybody who's actually, like, seen that opera? Do, do you have any... Can you see any reference points here? Or is this well, just completely different? Well, I can different? see is, I mean, obviously, Man and Butterfly was really guy and everything is all, all about the illusion of, you know, these trying to lure this is real, but it's not reality. I'm really just a guy trying to lure you in type of thing. And I saw one strange interview once by the, they thought they, thought they actually found the actual guy, and he was crazy. I mean, <laughs> he actually 
like wouldn't admit that he he was a guy like I'm really a woman and there was like this creepy like young guy right next to him and stuff and he was like saying oh yeah we actually did have you know, we had have relations and everything and I proved to him that I was a virgin by like showing him blood and stuff it was yeah but like I think that's the only thing I reference I got from that is this like you know I'm something beautiful but I really am something else mm. over that. Mm-hmm. So sort of an ugliness, yeah, the ugly, ugly reality, yeah. ugly reality, ugly reality tested against yeah. inner inner fantasy yeah. and kind of how humanity deals with it in different ways. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm, one last thing. I I really liked you know after towards the end, you know when they're trying to get out and then the spaceship took the form of a rose. Yeah, yeah. So the whole short is called Magnetic Rose. So I think that spaceship to begin with, I didn't quite focus on it at the beginning. It seemed more circular. Yeah, it seemed more circular, but maybe, yeah, maybe that was just an illusion created by like her fantasy world literally blossoming out. Um, And also, like, part of the reason why they go down there is they are drawn, part of the reason why they can't escape is they're drawn in by like the magnetic forces of, you know, probably the anti gravity that's on that. Station. So, so what do you what do you think happened at the end with uh, poor Heinz and uh, poor uh, 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 Miguel? Well, I think it's clear Heinz created his own community and became God. I think Miguel may have passed away. Uh, I don't know. Heinz might have been saved, depending on how long he was stuck in space. I don't know. Yeah, yeah he might have been. I, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess kind of the weird thing about that ending of the short is that I think both of them would have died, but one of them would have experienced the harsh reality of being suffocated to death out in outer space. Oh, yeah. And the other one would have been living in his little la di da fantasy world and suddenly started noticing that he was getting weaker and weaker. Yeah. And he can't eat or drink. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's you know, floating in space, there, it would be really difficult for someone to pick him up. And I guess, you know, again, these guys are garbage collectors yeah. and then they end up being garbage in the end, well, which is kind of See, it wasn't clear to me if their garbage did yeah, it, did the Russian did it get there, destroyed? Yes. Okay. So at the end, remember when uh, Russian dude uh, is like, I gotta save you guys. Yeah. What happens is he tries to fire something, it backfires and uh, destroys absolutely uh, everything. Okay. Then the entire base, along with the debris of that ship, condenses back into that rose oh, okay. at the end. Okay. And everything is sort of like revolving sure. literally around... Yeah. The Ava's, uh, the opera singer's ego. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that's where the this astronaut was then. In, in right, right. It was just like looking at, you know, yeah. this fantasy world outside and experiencing the cold, harsh, lonely reality of space. Right. But didn't they suck all the air out of the space station as well? Well, yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. I was wondering if it was like an airlock area. Right. And that was an area where it didn't matter if there was air being sucked out of it. Because, like, they show another part of the ship, which is completely unrelated, and it doesn't look like gravity's been sucked out, where the opera singer is, like, the skeleton of the opera singer is lying there, you know. 
which is wonderfully creepy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that's the thing though. Like, if they obviously, since everything on the the space station is mechanical, it doesn't matter if there's no air because it'll keep doing its thing. Yeah. Uh, but poor Miguel will probably die at that point because I assume he's still alive unless he's been killed and somehow like added to the program. Mm. I'm not sure how that works, but they didn't really say. Cool. So anyways, uh, that was the first short. I think uh, unless anybody has any final things they want to say about it. Nope. Okay, well, uh, my, my final recommendation is Google Satoshi Kon and Koji Morimoto, because uh, they both have really awesome stuff. You do a little searching around. Uh, Morimoto deserves way more credit than, than he gets, especially, so. Anyways, next short uh, was directed by Tensai Okamura, who didn't really do anything that noteworthy. He did a, like, a TV show called Wolf's Rain, uh, but the screenplay was written by Katsuhiro Otomo. And literally, I think what they did, uh, though I haven't actually read the original comic, was take one of his old comics from his anthologies mm -hmm. and just adapt it into... One of Otomo's? Yeah, one of, okay. one of Otomo's old comics that he wrote in the 70s or 80s that America will never see, unfortunately, because <laughs> Otomo doesn't want them to come here for whatever, God knows whatever reason. Sorry, a little, little uh, jaded on that one. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, basically... Uh, um, this film is, I think, really has a really interesting political background, and I, I figured I'd just open with this. Basically, the film is about a scientist who's a bit of a klutz, who stumbles upon uh, a medication in a lab. He has a cold, and one of his coworkers recommends to take a pill. Uh, that pill ends up, in fact, uh, causing him to emit gas all humans and causes all plants to bloom when like you say crazy. Gas, you just don't mean like flatulence. You mean like. Body odor. Body odor. <laughs> yeah, like yellow clouds. Yeah, huge clouds uh, of some kind of toxic gas. Right. Well, it's weird because, like you said, it kills animals and people, but is causing the flowers to bloom? Is it like? I don't know. I, I always thought that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like the Japanese are like really obsessed with like different flowers blooming at different times oh, yeah. of the year. Sure. So I think I think that was an effect to make things really unsettling. Okay. And they're really into like the meaning of flowers and everything. I mean, even if you go to like the sitcoms, it's a really big deal to like give the romantically these certain flowers and they actually, they, they make a point of saying what they mean too. It's weird that they, they, they yeah. yeah, they're really, yeah. yeah. And when I was in college and took some like Japanese culture classes, we read a novel and literally every chapter started with about a page describing what was going on with nature at that time of year. <laughs> so that's wow. pretty much kind of how the Japanese roll with that kind of thing. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of myths and everything to do over the mountains and, you know, yeah. and a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of people, a lot of gods supposedly live in there. You gotta be nice to them. Mm. <laughs> Everything has a spirit. <laughs> yeah, in, in relation to the other two, this one was silly. <laughs> Quite yeah, silly. yeah, it, it's pretty much just like one long running joke. Uh, I think probably the most interesting thing is sort of the political background of it. Uh, Otomo was involved in student protests movements back in the 60s and 70s, sort of the latter half that was more radicalized. And you can definitely see it like in Akira with all the like protests constantly happening and all the explosions everywhere. Uh, and this film really takes a jab at this thing known as the ANPO Treaty or the San Francisco Treaty. 
And uh, the majority of that protest group was called Anpo Hantai, or Oppose the Anpo Treaty. And that treaty basically uh, gives the United States military sovereignty over Japan. Uh, Japan's technically not allowed under Article 9 of the Constitution to have a military. But because of the Cold War, we kind of let them have a self-defense force. But due to this treaty, if Japan's military doesn't do what we want it to do, we can just go in and take over. <laughs> be their defense, basically, were their military. Japan doesn't technically have one, but they have a self-defense force. <laughs> so uh, so that's kind of the core of a lot of this and when they satire. Funding the pill, too, the research for the pill in the beginning. And then, and then so they actually made the problem, which, of course, they did with the atomic bomb and everything. They created a huge problem. And at the same time, this pill was, like, such a big deal. Yeah. It shouldn't just be sitting out on the guy's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I think is almost like a Mr. Bean kind of scenario in a way. It's like he was just completely clueless and like everybody's dropping around the email when his grandma says, turn back, I need to come. That's like what, grandma? Your, 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 your grandma grandmother just a helicopter telling you to go the other direction. And he's like, I don't know what to do. This is weird. Things are dying around me. Every military force Right, right. They, they have like the yeah. entirety of the Japanese self-defense yeah. force, and then like American reinforcements oh. on top of that, and they still couldn't get this poor guy because for whatever reason the gases all scrambled the missiles and yeah, right. caused them to like blow up everything else. What yeah. I love the best is it's on this little scooter and the bridge is falling apart, and he's like, "Oh, this is so annoying." I guess uh, there aren't very many common themes between these three shorts, but one common thread you could probably talk about is that every short involves common people. The poor little guy is just a regular Joe working at a working at a research lab, and he didn't want to get involved in in geopolitical crap. He just wanted to like you know. Yeah. <laughs> he was just doing what he was told to do. Though so I think he mixed up the colors and the. I mean, like, if I was in this short, I would have eaten the pill, but I don't think I would have been as dumb as he was about going outside. If I worked at a biomedical research lab, I'm not just going to go, oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. just take a random <laughs> pill without, like, double checking and triple checking. <laughs> It was like, oh, this was a secret project. It was co-funded with American money, yeah, as right. usual. Um, <laughs> and Americans. I mean, this one, yeah, was definitely cheesy, but I kind of liked it. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. One thing I really love about it is the soundtrack. It's this kind of fun mambo mm -hmm. jazz, you know. Uh, da -da -da. Yeah, so it, it was a good um, uh, midpoint between the two more serious yeah. have a little a little more lighthearted. well i think it really perked you up too because i mean the ending of the very first one was a bit of a downer mm -hmm. it's like oh that is really sad like here yeah i kind of I love the contrast between poor miguel or not miguel heinz like floating out in the space possibly to die and then yamanashi <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it starts off with the news broadcast, right? Right, right. This, this like, cheery. And, and, I mean, if you ever go to Japan, everything's, like, ridiculously cheery and yeah. cheesy. And it's, like, this ridiculously cheesy morning show. Uh, um, and there's cartoons everywhere. 
I mean, cartoon characters showing you like information and everything and stuff. Yeah. So. I liked the line where they're like, "Oh, well, we have to make sure that he's not stressed and his metabolism is low, otherwise he might produce more gas." And then they're like, "Oh, we're just gonna put our entire military force because that's." <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, all those command center scenes with all the military guys hunkered around, like mm-hmm. just being military people, really reminded me of. Uh, uh, what was that? Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. Yeah. 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 Hey, Dimitri, I'm upset too. It's a very silly thing. No fighting in the war room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I, I kind of like this whole thing has that kind of sense of humor, and I think I think Otomo's purposely like channeling that. Uh, and if you actually watch the making of on this DVD, Okamura is like, I just did everything Otomo told me to do. So, and it, it shows. It's very much like an Otomo kind of thing. It's very different than the other one where it was two guys like, let's see how different we can be from Otomo. Yeah. This is just like straight. If you read a lot of his, if you read, if you can get your hands on any of his like older comics, a lot of them are kind of satires against the military and technology like this one. So, all right. Things we want to add about that last, sh- that second short. I'll let Michael argue. All right. So the third short uh, is, I think, I think the by far the least conventional out of the three, and a lot of people don't like it because it's so convention unconventional. Um, I personally love it. Um, I think I think it's definitely a short that a film crowd would love more than like a anime crowd. Um, so like uh, uh, basically some cool things about it. Uh, first of all, uh, this was right when computers were just starting to like enter the world of animation, and um, the whole film is actually shot like to be the illusion of one take, which is extremely difficult to do in animation. Sure. Uh, you know, a little bit like uh, um, oh, uh, Hitchcock's Rope, for instance. Mm-hmm. It uses that same kind of technique, but Otomo, and Otomo actually directed this short. He both wrote and directed this short. Or a movie uh, more recently, like Birdman? Yeah. yeah, yeah, a little bit like Birdman. It's the same kind of style yeah. as Birdman, uh, but without the constant, like, drumming and the guy with the drum set yeah. going around. But uh, it's kind of a film that, like, through its, like, camera work, remind you constantly that it is a film. Uh, but what's really neat about it is doing that kind of effect in animation is very difficult. And they actually showed people on the making of, like, putting cameras, like, elaborate cameras around very long lines of drawings. And then they used the computer to, like, composite and clean things up. And they actually, I think they did a beautiful job. I don't know if anybody else, like, could see any, like, weird artifacts or anything. Thing like that. No, you're, I think you're probably have a more of an eye for that than anyone else. Here. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and that's partially due to Pat's influence. I well, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I am friends with an animator, so you know, uh, that that definitely helps. Uh, he'd probably pick up on some stuff himself, though. He'd probably pick up on even more than you did. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but uh, so visually, it's it's more in the vein of like uh, European animation. Like it has a lot of hatching on the characters. I was getting like almost like this Metropolis type feel to it, and you know the workers going off and it's yeah. this bleak future almost. You know, just keep working. You know, like what are we fighting for? Like I don't know. Yeah. And that's that's what that's what 
moving their economy yeah. forward is being at war. Yeah. But I, the first thing I thought of was 1984 by George Orwell, yeah. because the whole point of that book mm -hmm. is war, permanent war yeah. not only allows for uh, uh, people to live under a totalitarian society, uh, it also pushes the economy forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in the case of this world, it's taken so far to an extreme that I think it provides meaning and purpose to everybody. Like their entire world revolves around cannons and steam. And, mm -hmm. I, and yeah, this whole short, like, like I love the, the steampunk kind of aesthetic where mm -hmm. it, it's very primitive, but in some ways it's very advanced. And the, uh, the ceremony behind the firing of the gun where you, you have the, the high-level guy that just struts out and hits the button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> about contrasting, you know, he is admired. They have the picture of, mm -hmm. you know, the guy who's supposed to be doing it, he's this very fit young guy. Yeah. yeah. The guy who actually does this is kind of ugly, yeah. old fat man. Yeah. He's yeah. not right. really, you know, they have a Right, right. But he's dressed really fancy, and you sort of get the feeling that the propaganda posters, this is sort of like a communist kind of society. But even within the communist society, there's still this weird class system. Uh, and I almost think that this is like Otomo, who's a leftist himself, sort of like poking fun of communism, sort of hypocrisy uh, in terms of, you know, class and society. And it's interesting how like the whole town is set up around these canyons, and uh, clearly the the father in this one he worked at the big canyon in the city, and when that shot off, like people stopped and cheered, and um, yeah, it just shows like how the whole day is structured around this kind of ambiguous goal. Well, it it, it looks like they were expected to cheer. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. The, uh, supervisor or whatever was walking up down the line, and the one lady taps the other one out because she wasn't cheering. Enthusiastically, <laughs> yeah. And even when she does cheer, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. In all of these societies, there's people that truly believe in right. it and people who don't as much. Yeah. I think we saw her outside taking the, the posters from uh, the people. Uh, okay. Or maybe she was one of the people that was yeah. saying, okay, we need to improve this. And that, again, we feel what they were like advocating for was like, not ending this, it was let's use non not as harmful gunpowder. Right. So that the workers right. who are fighting towards our glorious goal for dear leader will uh, will be able to survive a little better and live a little better life. <laughs> but um, I, I really love kind of the visual storytelling here. Like this isn't this isn't a traditional narrative. This is something where, hey, we're just gonna show you the day in the life. Uh, focusing on two characters, a father and his boy, and we're going to show them go contrast the boy's life with the father's life. And I really felt you learned quite a bit about society, especially the kid being in class, and he's saying we'll, you know, triangulate our enemy's coordinates by using sine, cosine, and tangent, and they obviously have no idea where, or you know, what, what they can't see what they're shooting at. They're just aiming and shooting. They don't really know. And they don't uh, learn more about the power chemistry yeah. class. So everything has a war theme to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, even the freaking TV show they're watching is like the gun cannon family. The cannon. Uh, the yeah. Cannon family. yeah. And then there's the war report. We had five major hits, <laughs> right. one like medium hit. Uh -huh. um, and what I was interested in is they showed they did one pan from like 
looking from being inside a city looking out and you did see kind of like a field with a bunch of holes in it. Mm. Like, yeah. It wasn't yeah. quite clear if that's holes that they produced or that the enemy produced. Yeah, and I don't I don't even know if the enemy actually exists. Exactly. I get the feeling that this is a world where the enemy doesn't necessarily exist, or even if they do, they're just a symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh and basically they're just living in their own little bubble. It's like a North Korea. Yeah. Of, oh, yeah. You know? There was uh, they talked about counterattacks, but we never actually saw a counterattack. They just fired their cannon. Yeah, when the kid went to bed yeah. at the end of the short, there were air raid signs. Yeah, and I wonder where the light was coming from, and I don't know. But you, you almost wonder if that's just a shout, too. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it's just a like a visually magnificent short. My my favorite scene out of that whole thing, personally, I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in, but my favorite scene out of that whole thing is after the elaborate ceremony of the cannon, the big fat rich guy pushes the button. Cannon fires, and then it does this pull-back zoom where you see the cannon, and then it just keeps on zooming into the factory where the munitions workers are working, and then every single munitions worker is going, yay, yeah. yay, and that's just an absolutely incredible shot. Yeah, it would be very difficult to pull off in live action, too. You know, it's not only difficult to pull off in animation, it's difficult to pull off in live action, and it just, they just nailed it. I get chills down my spine every time I see that scene. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think North North Korea is probably a good comparison here because it shows you know society being set up against one goal, and then once you're integrated into it, being um, you know like that becomes your reality. And I always say you know I guess bringing it into context with more you know current political climates like nationalism is growing across the globe, and uh, you know. From someone who lives in North Korea, having that like goal of like we must attack the enemy—that is their form of nationalism. Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely. I mean, you can kind of see just by looking at the current state of things how bubbles influence the way people look at the world and how those sort of social bubbles and social constructs that we live in shape how each one of us is going to live about our daily lives. It may not be anything as ridiculous as canons, but, you know, societal views and whatnot. I think for me and and my brother, too, coming from Ohio and just seeing, like, the contrast between how where we grew up views the world and where we live now views the world is really fascinating. You know, and it can go as extreme as the entire world revolves around canons fighting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um... But yeah, one of the quip I was going to do on the sh- on the short was there were rumors, nothing confirmed. But it, did anybody watch Steam Boy? It's another film Ultimo did. Uh, I don't remember if I did or not. Yeah, but well, basically, it, it is forgettable in my opinion. But uh, there are some rumors that this was originally what Steam Boy was going to be about, and that this short was a preview for it. Yeah, I think I remember you mentioning. That. Right, and unfortunately, Otomo tried to like get Steam Boy to be as big as possible in Hollywood. And Hollywood just chewed him up and spat him out. But in the process, he created a very watered-down film after the fact. So, uh, but as is typical when people go from Japan to the or US. go from Asia to the yeah, U.S. Asia to the just US. in general, yeah, John Woo, true, you know that kind of thing. So, or even just overseas in general. I think the only guy that's kind of survived is like Paul Verhoeven, but that's because Paul Verhoeven creates works that are like so absurdly over-the-top American that they're satirical, and he can kind of get away with it. Mm. 
and we get showgirls. Yeah. <laughs> Let's. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, Robo, Robocop is, is more what I was thinking. Of, but yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or Starship Troopers. I just kind of thrown out. Uh, <laughs> not that you're not wrong, or not that you're wrong, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, even Showgirls itself could be a satire. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, as I mean, bad as it is. Yeah, that's where it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, Showgirls is in uh, so bad it's very Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, and I, I think I think a lot of people when they're watching Ultimo, like Akira itself, a lot of people li- like it for it being like badass action and whatnot, but. Like, even Akira, if you read deeply enough into it, a lot of it's just satire of post-world So, Odo did Akira as well? Right. Okay. So, this is a guy that does Akira. He's done several other anthology shorts, but this is by far, in my opinion, the best one. Because the last couple anthology shorts he did, the last one being short piece, he's like, I don't like 2D animation anymore. I'm going to do this shell-shaded stuff. Hmm. And it's way weaker. Like, you can just do so much better design work. You know what I mean? Without doing the fake CGI thing. And it just, it drives me nuts that Otomo's been wasting the last 20 years of his life on that garbage. Even if he's produced some kind of interesting shorts, but never anything like that good. Did he produce in the show too? No, no. Different guy. Because that that guy tried to do some of the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was weird for weird hybrid. But But anyways. Anyway. So uh, I guess, I guess sort of maybe, uh, I think, I think we should probably end this just by final thoughts people have. Uh, you know, if you had a favorite short, if you had to rank the, the shorts, how would you rank them? Uh, whoever wants to go first. Um, I think I would rank the first one as the best, and the last one as number two, and then the middle one's number three. Yeah. And any additional thoughts about this as an anthology? Uh, I haven't watched that many anime anthologies. So or animation anthologies yeah, in general. Yeah, in general. So I don't have a whole lot of... I mean, I think like heavy metal. It's <laughs> probably the only one I've seen. So. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe some Looney Tunes anthologies. But <laughs> I guess looking at these three as, you know, together in one, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier the, that there's a common man like it's the common, you know, almost like working class person. I like that. There's also kind of some commentary on, you know, governments and how they, you know, kind of manipulate things, you know, in, to to get certain ends. Um, so I, I think there's some kind of common themes across all all three that were pretty interesting. Cool. So I'll go with uh. <laughs> I like I I probably really like the second one probably more than most people because I just I I think it was kind of funny clueless character. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of liked him. <laughs> well, we know who likes Mr. Bean the most. Yeah, I do. I, do like, I I watched Christmas one every holiday. I do. That's my favorite one. <laughs> and I, I guess I'll end by saying this is one of the strongest uh, uh, anthologies, particularly from Japan. Uh, I watch, I've watched a bazillion animation anthologies. I just, I love like animated shorts from all over the world. And out of the ones Japan has produced, I put this like in the top three. Um, and I really think uh, uh, Magnetic Rose is just a masterpiece. It is like a who's who of all the really great creators in the world of Japanese animation that don't get enough attention from serious film people and kind of do, they kind of do deserve 
better attention than what they get. Like, look past all the cloud of, like, all this ridiculous fandom stuff and look at a work like this like it is a film. And it's a really interesting film. And don't set it aside just because it is animation. So uh, Magnetic Rose is amazing. All-star team, wonderful short. Uh, and then Can Fodder, I think, is just a really great technical uh, short. And the third one really is just a weaker bridge that's just funny and goofy, but kind of forgettable, to be honest. Uh, so, but still, yeah, entertaining and great production values. Great production values all the way around. Yes, the animation is stilted. If you're a diehard animation fan, on the, on the Western sense, you'll be like, oh, the characters look like living corpses. But yeah, they basically had you know, like a, a tenth or less of the budget that America would have. So, and they still all look really good for those constraints. So that's it for Film Punch this week. Uh, we hope to see you again soon. Uh, next up. Uh, um, next up, I think we're probably going to do Shape of Water um, and then another Oscar film that we're, we're still trying to figure out which one we're going to do. Um, so stay tuned for that in February, and you can find us on Twitter at, at Film Punch Meetup, and you can email us if you have any suggestions, um, things you want to hear about, or podcasts, uh, at filmpunch at gmail.com. Yep, and thank you for listening to Animation Month. Uh, we hope we've provided you with an eclectic uh, group of animated films that go beyond... Animation for adults. Pretty much. <laughs>